John 18, 1-14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chrissy and Henry. Many of you know that We've been living in Hershey over the last year or so, looking forward to moving back into the area, to the house we bought in E-Town, but we've enjoyed these rides on Sunday morning here to church. Amy usually drives, and I usually go over my sermon notes on the way here, and this morning she said, are you ready to preach? And then she said, you better be. And she said, it better be good. They won't let you go on sabbatical again. Of course, she was joking, big smile on her face, but I am delighted to be back, and today I am also excited to return to our study of John's Gospel. Just a brief review before we get started. John, you might know, is one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, an eyewitness account. So this is what we're reading. One of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, it's written by John, the beloved apostle, and throughout the book, he often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And let's not that be lost on us, who we are as the children of God, the disciples whom Jesus loves. John wrote with a clear, stated purpose in mind. Now, I'll give you a pass today, because maybe you haven't heard it for two months, but you heard me say it over and over and over again. The end of John, chapter 20, verse 31, John says, These are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is why he's writing, this is why we're studying this gospel. Then he begins this gospel, chapter 1, with the prologue or the introduction. He tells us all these amazing things about Jesus, and then the rest of the book, he's showing us how they are true. He's presenting the evidence before us. So chapters 2 through 12, it's often referred to as the book of signs. These miraculous signs that reveal who Jesus is. And then you have these varied responses from the people. And so they often follow this basic pattern in these accounts. Jesus will perform a miraculous sign or he'll make a staggering claim and people will misunderstand or they'll get angry. And then each encounter confronts people in such a way that they are compelled to respond to Jesus. 
Who is this man? What do I believe about him? Will I follow him? That's chapters 2 through 12. Then chapters 13 through 17, we have the upper room discourse. Jesus' final night with his disciples. Some Some of the final words that he will say to them. He loves them to the end. He washes their feet. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He teaches us about the Holy Spirit, and then he prays for them and for us. And that brings us here to chapter 18. And so for the rest of this gospel, we're looking at the last few days of the life of Jesus. His arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, and then indeed his glorious resurrection. So on my first Sunday back after a couple months away, I thought I would just keep it simple. And the text will help me do that this morning. I want to stay close to the text. But look at how our passage ends today in verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. What does that mean? One man should die for the people. What kind of man is this? What kind of death did he die? And for whom did he die? Those are the questions that we'll ask today. And my prayer, once again, indeed, is just what Chrissy prayed for us, that God would speak through me by his Holy Spirit to point you to his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit, right now, the Holy Spirit will fall on us all and open our eyes and our hearts to behold the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will rejoice in him again. We'll respond with repentance and faith and new obedience. So you're about to hear, once again, the best news that the world has ever heard. And it's my hope and my prayer that we'll all receive it as such, that we'll all marvel at it, that we will believe and trust and obey. So first question, what kind of man is this Jesus? He is truly human, he is truly God, and he truly loves. Let's see it in the passage. He's truly human. So twice, Jesus asked Judas and the soldiers, whom do you seek? And both times they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds, I am he. Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's been a long time, but you might remember in John chapter 1, when Philip told Nathanael that they had found the one that Moses and the law and the prophets had written about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, this small town, seemingly insignificant. But the point here in John 18 is not the town, not the place so much, as it is the person. Jesus was a real man, born at a real time in history in a real place. He was a Jewish man. People saw him. They knew where he was from. So Jesus was and is truly human. Jesus of Nazareth, a real, living, breathing human being, and as such, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He felt pain. He experienced sorrow. He got tired and hungry and thirsty. He ate and he slept. He learned and he grew. Jesus of Nazareth. Truly human. That's the kind of man this is, this was. But that's not all. He is also truly God. 
when Jesus asked them, who do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, not I am he. That's our English translation. But what he literally says is simply, I am. I am. What is Jesus doing? Once again, he is identifying himself as God in the flesh. Now again, I know it's, it's been a long time, but back in March of 2020, as we were preparing for the study through John's gospel, I encouraged you to memorize some verses to help us along the way. And one of those first, if not the very first verse, was Exodus 3.14. Now you might think, why memorize a passage from the Old Testament if we're studying a New Testament gospel? But here's why. Remember Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, Moses, that he's going to use him to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. He's going to rescue them, deliver them from oppression and death. And Moses hesitates. He's not so sure. And so he says to God, if I go to them and tell them that the God of their fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. This is the self-revelation of God Almighty. This is his name. He is the eternal self-existent one. He had no beginning. He has no end. He had no cause. He is the uncreated creator, the all-powerful king. The first Sunday I was gone, you had an excellent sermon from Luke LeDuc on Psalm 2 about autonomy and authority. God has all authority. He alone is autonomous, not dependent on anything or anyone else. He has life within himself. That is not us. We are totally dependent on God every millisecond. You cannot live apart from him. He gives you every breath that you take. He gives and he takes He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The great I am answers to no one. We answer to him. He is the king and the judge. We will be held accountable for every idle word that we speak. What kind of man is this? Jesus is saying, yes. Yes, I am Jesus of Nazareth truly human, but that's not all that I am. I am. I am God in the flesh. And this has been a major theme throughout John's gospel. A major theme. We have studied the seven I am statements that Jesus has made, showing that he is indeed the fulfillment of all these Old Testament themes and images and promises. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We have seen this over and over again. We have also seen all the times where Jesus simply says, I am. It's not a statement, not an image, not a, not a metaphor, simply, I am. Remember John chapter 4? Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says to him, we know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he tells us all, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, I am. And she believes, and her life is transformed. She goes back and tells her village. They come, and they see, and they believe. John chapter 6, the disciples are out in the boat. They've been rowing three or four miles, and they see Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they're frightened. And Jesus says, I am. Do not be afraid. John chapter 8, Jesus is having this discussion with the Jews, and he is making himself known to them. And he says to them, Before Abraham was, Abraham, the father of their faith, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago, before Abraham was, I am. And what do they do? They pick up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they saw the theme. They knew what he was claiming, that he's claiming to be God. Now, if you don't see it, and the repeated theme throughout the gospel, the flashing neon signs that John is presenting for us, I want you to see it and the response of those who supposedly have the power and the authority in this encounter. Now, I don't think this has happened to any of you. I don't think someone comes up to you and you ask them, who are you looking for? And maybe they say, I'm looking for Dan Fetters. And you say, that's me, I'm Dan. And they fall to the ground. I don't think that happens to us. Now, we do that kind of thing in our culture today with our obsession with celebrities. We fawn over people who might be good at sports or maybe they can sing good or today they're an influencer, whatever that is. But we fawn over these people and we gather around them, and we ooh, and we ah, and we want their autograph, and they might even scream, ooh. That's foolishness. It's ridiculous. It's not what's happening here. You want to know what this is? We don't have to guess. Let's just follow the pattern, the evidence. When God reveals himself to people like this in the Bible, what happens? So we go to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel has this vision of God and he describes it. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is telling the story of his salvation. He was on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute Christians. And the risen, exalted, reigning Christ appeared to him. And what does he say? I fell to the ground. Revelation chapter 1, the the apostle John, same, same apostle who wrote this gospel that we're studying, he has this vision of the glory to come, the judgment to come, the exalted Christ, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And what do we see happen here in John 18? Jesus steps forward to face the mob that would arrest him and take him to his death. Now, I don't know how you picture this scene in your mind, but it's probably not quite what you're thinking. 
Twice in this passage, first in verse 3, John says a band of soldiers. And that word can refer to a thousand, a group of a thousand, or maybe some say it might be 600, it might be 200, whatever it is. This is not just Judas and a few other people. You picture in your mind a group larger than is gathered here with us this morning. A band of soldiers. Think army rangers or navy seals, the best of the best. They have been trained in warfare, and they are carrying torches and weapons. And Jesus, unarmed, steps forward alone. He faces his captors. He simply opens his mouth and takes the name of God on his lips. I am, and that revelation of glory drives them to the ground, prostrate in the dust before them before him. Just like that, who, I ask, is in control? Who has the power? Who has the authority? And who's afraid of whom? Jesus is not afraid. Who is to be feared? Not the mob of soldiers with their torches and weapons, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. The great I am God in the flesh. Who can stand before him? Even here in this dark hour, Jesus holds ultimate power over his enemies, ultimate power over the powers of darkness. Why? Because he's not simply a man. This is God Almighty, the great I am. Beloved, it's this same Jesus who holds ultimate power over your darkest hours. And he is working out his plan to deliver, to, to deliver you, to bring you safely home. Beloved, you are a gift from God the Father to his Son, and he will not lose you. He will not lose any that the Father has given him. So whatever darkness you face, you are not left alone. The one who rules even in the midst of darkness, he will bring you safely through it into the eternal life. For this one, who is truly human and truly God, also truly loves and truly protects. He is our shepherd. Listen to what he says. See what he does here, verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. And so they arrest Jesus and they leave his disciples alone. Their safety here is secured by his arrest. For the moment, for the moment, he saves their physical lives. What's he doing? He's acting out beforehand what he will more fully, more deeply, more eternally accomplish for them when he actually goes to the cross. Yes, now he secures their physical lives, their physical freedom, but he will then secure their eternal lives and freedom forever. This is the kind of man, this is the kind of shepherd that we have. He puts himself between his sheep and the wolves. He steps forward to focus the attack on himself. He protects and guards his own. He did it here, and he will do it for you, his people, today. 
Amen. Jesus of Nazareth, truly God, truly human, truly loves, truly protects. This is the kind of man, this is the kind of Savior that we have. Now, what kind of death did Jesus die? It was a willing death, and it was a substitutionary death. Jesus suffered the wrath of God for our sin in our place. Now, by willing, I mean that Jesus offered himself up. He was resolved to die. He was obedient to the point of death. We heard him say in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. We know that this death was willing, that it was voluntary. Yes, because of who Jesus is. No one can take his life from him, but also because of what he says. And we see it in the details here. It tells us that Jesus went to a place that was well known by Judas. He had often gone there with his disciples. Judas had seen him there often. Doesn't it sound like Jesus is almost making it easy for them? He's not hiding. He's not on the run. He's not trying to escape. In fact, we're told he knew all that was going to happen to him. And he went willingly. He willingly walked the path of suffering. So this is a willing death. A beautiful display of his love for us. But it's more than that. There's a great significance here that goes far beyond that. No, Peter tries to save Jesus from this arrest, from walking this path. But Jesus says to Peter in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This was the cup that Jesus had anguished in prayer over in that garden just moments before. Matthew in his gospel tells us that three times Jesus prayed in agony, sweating drops of blood that this cup might pass from him. What was this cup? The prophet Isaiah says it's the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. The prophet Jeremiah says, the cup is the cup of the wine of my wrath. What is in this cup? The wrath of Almighty God is in this cup. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And it is his wrath against sin that is in the cup. And Jesus, in his death, will drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. Psalmist says, Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup is meant for the wicked. It's meant for the wicked as the just and righteous punishment for their sin But Jesus, truly human, truly God, truly loving, willingly takes it out of our hands and drinks it for us. One of the things I got to do on my sabbatical was attend the CCEF conference, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation Conference. It's a wonderful conference. They do wonderful work helping us understand where life and scripture meet and, and training us how to think according to the word of God and, and share that with others. It was a joy to see Bill and Nikki there and Pete and Jen and enjoy that time together. And also it was a joy to have Shylin there, this reformed hip-hop artist who 
uh, had a wonderful sermon. Afterwards, Bill said, when are we going to get him to come preach here? And I thought, yeah, that would be wonderful to have him come preach here. But you know, if you know Nikki Arnold, you know she likes to joke around a little bit. And as, as it happens, as we were at that conference, she got on an elevator and in walks Shai Lin and is standing right next to her. And then when we come to this um, session where he's going to be preaching, Nikki says to me, I saw Shai Lin on the elevator. I told him you like to rap in your sermons sometimes. And then she's, she makes me think he's going to ask me to come up after he's done and, and start rapping in front of everybody. Now, I need to clarify this. I do not rap in my sermons. But I do sometimes quote Shailin because he has a wonderful way of taking deep truths from the scriptures and expressing them to help us understand them. And so I'm going to quote him this morning because it can help us see the kind of death that Jesus died. It can help us sense what he actually suffered in drinking this cup. And beloved, the physical pain of the crucifixion was nothing to Jesus. It was nothing to him. Yes, as a man, he felt it. It was physically painful. But what was the true suffering was bearing the weight of sin the wrath of God. That was the agony of the cross. And so this may seem graphic to you, but it is a good sense of what Christ suffered. Shai Lin, the cross, he says, we're now in the realm of the sublime and profound. With God at the helm, it's about to go down. What does that mean, God at the helm? It means this is the cup the Father gave to the Son. This is the plan of salvation that God put together before all time for us. With God at the helm, it's about to go down. The Father's wrath, precise, will blast and slice the priceless master Christ as a sacrifice. Willingly, he's under the curse to be treated as if the Son was the worst scum of the earth. The scene is the craziest. Jesus being treated as if he is the shadiest atheist How is it the Messiah is in the fiery pit as if he was a wicked liar with twisted desires? The one who's sinless and just, punished as if he was promiscuous and mischievous with vicious lust. The source of all godly pleasure tormented as if he was a foul investor or child molester. How could he be bruised like he was a goody two-shoes who doesn't think she needs the good news? He's perfect in love and wisdom, but he's suffering as if he constructed the corrupt justice system. We should mourn at the backdrop. Jesus torn, like he's on the corner with crack rock, with porn on his laptop. His gifts are infinite, but he's hit with licks for religious hypocrites. He's the light, but being treated like he's the seedy type who likes to beat his wife, he's treated like a Rapist, treated like a slanderer, treated like a racist, or maybe a philanderer. Jesus being penalized. Like he had sin inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write for a billion years. And still can't name all of the sins placed on the lamb slain. Beloved, this is the kind of death Jesus died. Our every sin was laid on him. We cannot fathom the wrath of Almighty God against every sin ever committed by everyone who would ever believe was poured out on Jesus. 
It was your sin that filled that cup. It was your wicked thoughts, your harsh deeds, your selfish actions, the cup of wrath you earned. Jesus willingly drank, and it cost him his life. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so we come to our next question. For whom did Jesus die? Jesus died for all kinds of people. For people like Peter and the soldiers. For people like you and me. Verse 14 tells us that Caiaphas had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And this is first recorded for us in John chapter 11. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. John tells us there that in saying this, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Jesus, one man, died for all kinds of people, people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. No one is excluded on the basis of their nationality or ethnicity or race. Jesus died for all kinds of people, to make us one, to bring us into his one family. Jesus died for People like Peter and the soldiers. And preaching on this passage and seeing how Peter responds, takes out his sword and tries to cut off the soldier's head. Tim Keller says this. He says, we have great comfort in Peter. Why? Because he's so glad that Jesus didn't say, after seeing that, okay, I I changed my mind. Take him instead of me. Right? Think about what Peter did here. This is premeditated sin. Premeditated sin. Why else would he be carrying a sword with him unless he was planning to use it? This is premeditated sin from one of Jesus' closest followers, his top three, and you could say he's at the moment of graduation, right? He's been in this grad school for three years following Jesus. This is the end of the program. It's nearly graduation day, and this is what Peter does doesn't get it. Romans chapter 5 tells us that Jesus died for us when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners. Beloved, I don't know about you, but this is great comfort for me that Jesus died. He died for people who planned to sin. We are so wicked. He died for people who plan to sin, who choose to sin, who sin on purpose. People like Peter and people like me. And people like you, if you're honest with yourself. And that would cause us to despair unless we had such a wonderful Savior who drank the cup willingly for us. You see, Jesus did not only die, he also rose again. He rose again to bring us to God to cleanse us from all that sin, to transform sinners into saints. And so we cannot leave this morning without asking this question, how do you respond to such a man, to such a savior, to such love? How do you respond today? Jesus is the great I am. There is no one greater. There is no better friend. There is no greater love. How do you respond to him? The soldiers 
fell to the ground. They had an encounter with the living God right in front of them. He made himself known. But then what? They got back up and went about their business. They kept on living as they pleased. They rejected Jesus. Do not let that be you today. God is making himself known today, right here. And he will not be mocked. You will be held accountable for what you have heard today. And if you choose to reject Jesus, you must do it with your eyes wide open, knowing what the word of God says awaits you. And so I turn to John again. In Revelation chapter 14, John has this vision of the coming judgment. And he heard an angel say with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. Friend, Jesus offers to drink that cup for you. There's no greater offer in all the world. But if you refuse him, you will drink it yourself for all eternity. May God have mercy on your soul. And may he lead you to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus today. And if you already have, if you rejoice to hear this message because you know I'm telling you about your Savior, how do you respond? Amen. Amen. You fall down and worship. You marvel at your Savior, the one who died for you. You are renewed in your love for him. And today, you go forth, renewed in your desire and your strength to continue that daily life of repentance and faith and obedience. And you rejoice in this good news, the best news you've ever heard. One man should die for the people. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.